The first few weeks of fall are the perfect time to get outside and enjoy the fresh air, don't you think? If you live in the north like me, nice weather doesn't last too long. So today, take some time to decompress and enjoy what nature has to offer before it gets too cold. Hello, Immigrantly community, and welcome back. I am your host, Sadia Khan. And for this week's episode, you're in for a treat. Now, if the raw beauty of snow-capped mountains, crystal blue waters, and sprawling green forests takes your breath away, then today's guest will certainly inspire that adventurous spirit inside of you. Her travels, activism, and environmentalism definitely inspire me, especially since the environment has become an increasingly urgent topic of conversation. The evidence is everywhere. Burning forests in Argentina, massive floods in Bangladesh, drought in Spain. The impacts of climate change are here and they're getting worse. And according to a landmark United Nations report, not only are some of these impacts worse than previously known, some may already be irreversible. Today's IPCC report is a netless of human suffering that's right. I'm talking about climate change. Now, our relationship to the outdoors is so important. And that's why today's guest transforms the outdoors into a force of social and political advocacy. Isn't that cool? Vanessa Chavariaga Pasada is a Colombian-American athlete, activist, and environmental sociologist who's always on the move. From the freezing valleys of Alaska to the cloud forests of Colombia, Vanessa spends her days hiking, skiing, mountaineering, running, and ice skating through beautiful landscapes. The exciting photos on her social media say it all. She's a true adventurer. But at the same time, her travels go beyond mere wanderlust. Many non-white and immigrant people have complicated and underrepresented relationship with the environment. And Vanessa is no different. If mountains and skiing only feel like activities for white athletes with fancy, expensive gear, you're not alone. Vanessa has experienced these issues too. America's prejudices and social inequalities do not disappear when we venture through the outside world. Wouldn't you agree? So while it's important to keep climate change on our radar, she is encouraging everyone, you and me, to remember the social and cultural dynamics of the environment as well. What is our relationship to the outdoors? How can everyone, regardless of identity, location, or economic status, enjoy what the world has to offer? And perhaps most importantly, how do we preserve the planet for the future? Let's welcome Vanessa to our show. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for being on Immigrantly. I'm really excited to have you on our show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, I mean, there is so much to talk about and deconstruct. I want to start with your Instagram 
post that I recently saw and I just want to read it because I was so impressed with it and I want you to talk a little bit about it. So you said, when gatekeepers open door for you, they expect you to shut it down for someone else. It's like the rite of passage. The oppressed becomes the oppressor. The outdoor industry, like any other social system we've built, runs on ideas of scarcity. Internalizing the narrative that there is not enough for everyone inherently makes us compete against one another. I've seen this time and again between BIPOC individuals in the outdoor industry. What's truly radical is kicking the door wide open, using your privilege to lift others up. It's important to remember that creating opportunities for others will not take them away from you. It will have the opposite effect. It'll break down the door. Vanessa, that is so profound, beautiful, meaningful. It makes so much sense in so many ways, but people don't do that. Nobody breaks the door. As you said, they do shut the door once they're in. How do we change that mindset, practically speaking? Well, thank you. That was a really important post to me as well. Man, that's a good question. I think for me, it all starts from within the individual to individual basis. And I think when we scale things down to that individual basis, we each have a gift and a power that we can share with even one other person. And even in doing so, that is a radical act because it will hopefully encourage other folks to do the same. And I think that's how we start to change the tide Another part of that is just having these conversations, right? Because I feel like that's my background as a sociologist. I'm able to see these systems at play and how they affect all of us, but most people don't have a name for these things. And so I think putting a name to what's happening and then actively working to disrupt it in the scope of our own personal lives can really make a change. Give us an example of when you were able to do that for somebody else. So I am a professional athlete. I'm a professional skier and trail runner. And that is a super new space for me. But something that I've been doing as I grow in my career is I'm very, very open about sharing my resources with others. And that's something that even I feel a little uncomfortable doing, but I'll discuss how much I'm getting paid. And I'll just share that publicly with whoever asks, or I'll connect people with my brands or businesses that I work with, and I'll recommend others. And again, that could be seen as me taking away resources for myself because there will be someone to compete with. But I've seen the opposite effect. It really just creates this chain effect where there's just abundance in these spaces. Absolutely. And I love what you just said. Let's go back to environmental sociologist. What does the term really mean? What do they basically do? And how did you discover this field of study? So I was a trained sociologist in Mexico. I went to college there, but my love for the outdoors was somehow always missing from that space. And so when I moved to the U.S., I studied environmental studies and I coupled them together with environmental sociology, which is a new career that is developing in the sociology world. And it's basically studying the intersect or the nexus between people and nature. So studying how 
our relationships with nature, how we interact with nature, and how we can improve that on our end. So it's really about digging down back to the beginning and realizing, at least this country in the United States, how our relationships with nature were formed, how they're informed by all these different narratives, and what we can do about it. I've done a little bit of research with grizzly bears and human interactions with carnivores and how those relationships work, and then also working with removing barriers to access for people of color in the outdoors, because I really believe that there is space for all of us in the outdoors. And so I do a lot of education around those topics to create space for others. But really, environmental sociology can look like a lot of things, just really focusing on that intersect between people and nature. And you could really do anything because the truth is that we're not separate from nature. So that field can be really, really broad. Beyond academic understanding of it or the normative framework, I also find you to be quite adventurous, right? So anybody who's looked through your Instagram feed can see the pure joy that outdoors bring to you. And I was fascinated by this idea of hashtag van life, where your van is like a home, a living space for you. Type hashtag van life into Instagram and more than 12 million posts appear. And YouTube is packed with how-to videos and hacks, all pointing to a growing number of people who are interested in or fascinated by the possibility of life on the road. And I wonder, when did that happen? When did your relationship with nature and outdoors start to develop and then strengthen? What does that travel look like? Paint us a picture. So I did not grow up recreating in the outdoors at all. I know, it's surprising. <laughs> I was born in Colombia and I lived there until I was about seven years old. And so when I lived there, I was definitely outside all the time. I think relationships with nature in Colombia are really different than they are here. But then I moved to Michigan and I moved in the winter. Oh, that's brutal. Exactly. Yeah, I went from this like really warm, welcoming place to this like cold darkness. Like, <laughs> nobody in my family knew how like snow pants worked, you know? like no one knew what to do. So yeah, I think for a lot of different reasons, I spent most of my childhood indoors reading books, which is why I'm a writer now. I think I started going outdoors because it was the trendy thing to do in high school. And I did a few summer camps where I went camping for the first time. I climbed my first mountain, all these things. And it just opened up this world for me that I was voracious about. I wanted to eat it all up. And so I kept searching for opportunities for myself since my family never created them for me. And so it was a little bit more difficult, but I started working at a gear shop, you know, just trying to find my way to like have accessible gear and started going on my own little trips in Michigan. And then and I went on a Knowles course, which is a semester school. And I did a few months in Patagonia, South America, where I was mountaineering. So that was a really cool moment where I was able to really do something for myself. And it was also the first time where I went to a Spanish speaking country and was able to perform these sports that I love so much. And then I think things really shifted for me after that, when I started coming to terms with my own racial identity and realizing that this could really be a healing space for me because like many other folks of color or immigrants, I feel like my childhood was taken away from me by having to grow up more quickly than the rest of my peers. Things like translating things for my parents or being a first generation college student, like all these different things just sort of make you grow up faster. And when I was a child, the resounding narrative I would receive from adults is, oh my gosh, you're so mature for your age. You're so mature for your age. Did it bother you? I used to take that as a compliment. I used to think it was great until I realized what that meant. And then I got really angry about it. 
I'm mature for my age because I have to be, but I don't want to be. Like, I still want to be a kid. And so I feel like for me, really, the reason I find so much joy outdoors is because I can finally let that inner child exist. She doesn't have to fill out paperwork or answer questions or do anything of the sort. I can just be a child and that childhood joy really comes out. And my favorite thing is sharing that with other folks who identify like me as well. So that's been a really powerful experience. Let's circle back to what you just said. You've written about it as well. There are certain differences between American and Colombian ideas around the concept of outdoors. So first, for listeners, I want to clarify, when you say American, are we referring to white American or are we referring to America in general? Because sometimes I'll say American as quote-unquote white American, which is the default for a lot of people, but America is much more than that. So let's clarify that first, and then we'll move on to the differences. Yeah, I think that when I talk about America, I talk about white Protestant America, because the foundation of our country is rooted in that. Can you tell us about your familiar and cultural ties to nature, and how is it different from white America. It's really fun because Colombia is one of the most biodiverse countries on the entire planet. Hmm. There's just abundance everywhere. There's oceans, there's desert, there's mountains, there's glacier, every single thing you could find. And I definitely grew up with that in my backyard. My childhood formative memories are just green all around and there's lushness all around and there's wildlife. And what was really special is that in Colombia, the lines between indoors and outdoors are kind of blurred because of the climate and because of, again, the abundance and beauty. We really integrate the outdoors into everything we do. And even the houses are designed with patios that people spend time outdoors. The windows are always open. You can always hear the birds or the monkeys or the waterfalls. And I think that that's a product of the way that colonization happened in Colombia versus the United States. And I feel like folks in Colombia are still more connected with their outside environment and understand how it directly impacts their lives. And so my grandmother knows the names of the trees and knows which plants are edible. And we go for walks every morning and collect things and things like that. And so it's a really special space where, yeah, I feel like the distinct difference between indoors and outdoors humans and nature doesn't really exist. And so that's the mindset that I had coming into the US where I was suddenly met with this very rigid, binary, black and white, humans and nature are separate, indoors and outdoors are separate. And if you're going to go outdoors, you have to do it in a certain way. You have to have gear. And it's sort of this privileged take on things, right? Yeah. And so it's been nice to have this Colombian mindset of the outdoors because it just opens up more space for more people to belong there as well. In Colombia, everybody belongs because there's no distinction. And also, yeah, I think being surrounded by ecological abundance does do something to your brain. Like, I don't know the science behind it, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure... But being surrounded by all this abundance just makes you a more abundant person. And I see that in my relationships with others and just in my openness and willingness to try new things and expand my own self. And so when I think of Colombia, I think of abundance and connection with nature and all these things. And then in the U.S., it's like scarcity and binaries and a very exclusionary narrative of who belongs in the outdoors. But when we see minorities living in America, they also have a very 
tumultuous at best relationship with nature. So we can think of many reasons for that because of slavery and forced migration, genocide, displacement. How can minority communities living in America repair that relationship to the land and outdoor activities? And why do you think it is important? I think a lot of sovereignty when it comes to that question. And what I really like about sovereignty is that in the definition of sovereignty, it says that each community has to define what it is for itself. It can't be placed upon them, right? Because I think that each community, each individual healing will look different for them. And so my dad, for example, grew up working outdoors all the time. So for him, the outdoors is associated with labor and he worked on a pig farm. So now he hates going outdoors, huh. right? And so I've tried to do this with him too, because it's not as simple for me to be like, dad, let's just go outside because for him, that is not a restful or restorative experience. And so I think we have to get creative. Again, there's so many different ways to take up space in nature. And I think that with these rigid white American narratives, we think we have to climb mountains or fish or go run or hike or all these different things where like, you can really just sit outside on the porch every morning and drink coffee. And that is outdoorsy. Yeah. Like, why not? I like that. Yeah. And then like with my dad, he loves air conditioning. Because again, he grew up working outdoors and it was hot and it was sweaty and he was exhausted. And so for him, he loves like driving around a scenic place inside an air conditioned car. And that is still him interacting with nature, you know? And so I think we just have to broaden our perspectives a little bit about what success in nature looks like, because again, it could really be anything. And I think that also expands who belongs there. So again, people who have disabilities or people who have different ways of taking up space are also welcome to do things in their own way. There's nothing more or less superior about sitting outside or going for a walk around the neighborhood than there is about climbing a mountain. There's space for all of it. And sometimes climbing a mountain is difficult because you require certain gear and that is expensive mm -hmm. and it becomes exclusionary again. Exactly. This is so fascinating. I never thought of it that way. How for some people, nature can conjure up certain emotions based on their lived experiences. Totally. We always think of nature as fun and experimental, adventurous, but that doesn't apply to every person. And again, it's a very whitewashed, white American view of nature itself. Mm -hmm. There's this really interesting essay that has really stuck with me. It's called, Are You an Environmentalist or Do You Work for a Living? And it basically talks about this disparity between the working class and it's a case study on this logging and mining community. The narrative is, well, the folks who are working in logging and mining are inherently destroying the outdoors because their labor is directly connected to it. But it's like, no, they actually have a better understanding of how those ecosystems work than me sitting on my computer thousands of miles away. Like, <laughs> emitting carbon, I don't even know where it's going. It really comes down to one, white supremacy and two, classism, right? So we think that the outdoors has to be related to leisure and recreation. Mm. And in that way, it's a privilege. But when we see the outdoors as labor, we don't recognize that that's also an interaction and relationship that we have with the outdoors that is just as valid. And now we're talking about that abundance mindset that I grew up around. Vanessa, I want to pivot a little and talk about something else, which I've noticed on your Instagram, that locations you document on your Instagram are not listed as states, but as land stolen from various groups of indigenous people. 
do you believe that learning about the native origins of the land is something everyone should do when they are traveling and beyond traveling? What does learning mean? Do you think just learning is enough for us to face the brutal histories of what the United States did? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I do when I post photos is I place a land acknowledgement at the bottom of my photo. And I do think it's the absolute bare minimum for me personally as someone who has been educated in this space, because the places that we recreate and that we see as quote unquote playgrounds were once temples and medicine and houses and all these different things. And I think that by perpetuating these ideas of them as playgrounds are really erasing the history of what happened there. And it's incredibly harmful, especially around national parks. I live very close to Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. When you travel around them, you can feel the spirituality and the importance of those mountains and those hot springs. Like it is truly sacred ground and the animals that live there or once lived there. And so I think no landscape is complete without the people. And so I see these landscapes, I see these national parks and they're empty to me because the indigenous peoples that once inhabited those places are no longer there. And so I think it's incredibly important to educate folks, one, starting with that land acknowledgement. And there's a really cool website called Native Land. You can just Google it and you can type in where you're at and it'll give you the land acknowledgement of who lived there. And then you can use that and then Google those tribes, Google that history, learn a little bit more. And I think it'll make everyone's experience more profound. And the reason I think this is important is because colonization is still happening. I visit Colombia and I see colonization happening in the form of ecotourism and all these different things where we're instilling this white American mindset of people are separate from nature. So therefore we have to remove the people in order for this to truly be nature and pristine and wilderness. You know, all these words just mean genocide. And I think what's important is also uplifting the voices of actual indigenous advocates who are in this space today, because I think that a lot of people think that indigenous advocates are a thing of the past, but they're very much still here and very much still fighting for their own sovereignty and land. For example, I have a really close friend named Ellen Bradley, and she is Clinket, which is an Alaskan tribe. And she is also a professional skier. She works really hard to educate folks about these topics and give all of this back to her own community because we're all connected, I think that the healing and reparations for Indigenous peoples will ultimately create a better space for everyone else, too. How has this reorientation healed you or how has it changed your relationship with nature? What really struck with me was learning about the history of our national parks and how they were created. You know, learning about the white men who created national parks were open eugenicists, which means that they were actively involved in things like genetic superiority and cleansing of different communities, which is really, really messed up. And so with that mindset, they came into these spaces and performed a quote unquote cleansing, aka genocide of the land that I now live on today. And so I think that if you take the time to learn that history and listen, you can really feel its repercussions on the land. Again, it's all connected. The way that our elk populations migrate nowadays is completely unnatural because of the way we built a town in the middle of their migration corridor or the way that the indigenous communities on the reservation struggle 
with health problems is directly related to us removing their access to hunting and harvesting their ancestral foods and medicines. And so it's really been eye-opening for me, again, to learn that there's so much more to our national parks than we think. And this whole idea of wilderness is completely made up. I mean, there's direct quotes from folks who went on the first Yellowstone expedition in like 1817 or something like that, where they saw the indigenous peoples and actively chose to remove them and kill them and scare them off so that tourists could come in and enjoy the park. Oh, wow. And nobody knows about that. And so I think it's super important to talk about. I went to Yellowstone in 2007. I loved it. I traveled through it. We stayed there for three days. We took a bunch of pictures. It's a visual treat, but we never thought of what the historical context of the place is, because many times we are so focused on seeing what exists and how it exists now in the current space and the current ecosystem that we don't bother to look at the history. And sometimes it's so important to look at the history, Mm -hmm. history that's beyond what you read in American text, because it is too painful. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really good book called The Disposition of Wilderness that is specifically a case study about Yellowstone and I think Yosemite that really lays it all out. It's incredible. So when I say something else that I want to talk to you about is climate change. Now, it is a growing concern and there are a lot of environmentalists who talk about it. And this is me being extremely skeptical, but sometimes I feel that climate advocacy can be performative. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who are doing it probably don't know its impact. Now to Pakistan, where a torrential monsoon season accelerated by climate change has led to catastrophic flooding. One third of the country, an area the size of Colorado, is underwater. At least 1,100 people are now dead. And Something that happened everything. very recently, which made it a lot more personal for me, is the unprecedented level of destruction that happened in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. 33 million people are displaced. Thousands are dead. One third of the country is underwater. And we don't see coverage as much as we should be seeing. Now, people talk about giving aid to countries that face climate calamities. My problem with that is countries like Pakistan contribute, according to studies, 1% to emission gases, but it's facing the brunt of climate calamity, while economically advantaged countries like the US, Canada, and much of Western European nations contribute more than 70%. They've been contributing more than 70% to emission gases from fossil fuels and industry for the last, what, 170 years. And yet, when we talk about compensation, we talk about it in the context of aid rather than reparations. Mm -hmm. How do we change that narrative? Because to me, it shouldn't be aid. People should not give aid to Pakistan. It should be reparations for the disaster that is happening or unfolding now because of industrialization of Western countries. What are your thoughts on that? 
you nailed it right there. I think you're absolutely on point with that. There's so much there, but the first thing that comes to mind is the other day, I saw a meme on the internet that was a beautiful picture of, I think, Lake Louise in Canada. The text was, when you visit Canada, and it's this beautiful, pristine national park, and then right below it is a photo of an open mind pit, and it says, when Canada visits you. Oh, wow. And even that just really sums it up. I thought it was really striking, but what you're talking about is unfortunately the downside to one, neoliberalism and two, globalization. And so I think that when we talk about the global atmosphere and social sphere we've created, we have to talk about power imbalances. And in sociology, the terms that we now use are the global north and the global south, which just means the countries that have higher GDP, higher production, and then those who don't. And so the global north includes countries like Canada and the US and the UK and all these different places. And then the global south includes a lot of places in South America and Pakistan and a lot of things like that. And so as we've seen with the turn of the century, this push toward conservation and environmentalism in the global north, and people don't know this, right? This absolutely blew my mind when I learned it, but when the US and Canada and all these countries crashed down on laws of carbon emissions and production and exportation and exploitation, what they really did was they just moved it all to a different country so that they could then protect their own natural resources and exploit somebody else's. And so it's this externalization that is happening where they are taking and taking and taking from these countries in the global south who are then facing the repercussions but getting none of the wealth. So I think you're absolutely right when you talk about reparations and it's a topic that's hugely concerning to me mostly because of climate refugees and what's going to happen in the next 10 years. When we talk about climate change and the climate catastrophe happening, we talk about the US. It's already happening in countries like Pakistan and Colombia and Bangladesh, all these places, but we choose to unsee it, right? And the media also helps with that because again, it's part of this much greater NAFTA economic thing where countries who have power have decided that these extractive processes are more valuable to them than human lives. Mm. And of course, this has been going on forever. And so this is not a new thing, but it just has a new name and a new face. And unfortunately, the repercussions now are much more serious than they were in the past. And so I remember reading a lot about refugees and the migrant caravans that are going on and have been going on and will continue to happen. And there's all these anti-refugee sentiment and narratives going around the U.S., which just begs the question, where do you think refugees come from? Right. They don't come from nowhere. You know what I mean? Like, like the U.S. actively creates refugees through our own actions and then shuts them away. Like there's nobody, nobody that I know has left Colombia because they wanted to. They left because they had to. And the variables that created the situations for unsuitable quality of life are directly tied back to the global north and economy and all these different things. So I am 100% with you on that. And that's why it's important because aid equates to altruism. It's like, oh, you know, we are being so nice and generous to you. Yeah, humanitarianism. Right, it's humanitarianism. But reparations is accountability. Mm -hmm. And unless there's a paradigm shift from, as you said, humanitarianism to accountability, and it's important to have these very difficult conversations. So next time, if somebody talks about giving aid to Pakistan, I just want them to take a pause and rethink the language or the vernacular that they're using because it's not aid. 
mm-hmm. it's reparations that should be given to Pakistan. Totally. Moving on. Now, we've talked about some difficult stuff, something that people will think about and reflect on, but I cannot let you go without asking you about the most exciting adventures or surprising adventures that you've had. Something that really blew your mind away. I mean, there's so many to choose from. I think that the thing that comes to mind the most is just skiing. I recently learned how to ski and it's one of those things that just feels so good and so natural and I just have the biggest smile on my face the entire time I'm doing it and I honestly think about it every day. I'm like I can't believe this is a real thing that I get to do. So I learned how to backcountry ski, which means that instead of using a resort to go up the chairlifts and back down, you put these sticky skins on the back of your skis and you can walk up a mountain. Oh, wow. I had no idea it was real. And the most exciting day was last spring. I walked across a frozen lake for like six miles with some of my closest friends. And we camped at the base of this gigantic mountain called Mount Moran that we were going to ski the next day. And so we got to do winter camping which I didn't know you could do either. So we set up a tent in the snow and dug out these little trenches for the little kitchen. And it was starting to snow pretty heavily right before we went to bed. And so we slept in this tent. I had a sleeping bag that was negative 40 degrees. That's how warm it was. Oh. So it was like huge. I was super cozy in my tent and I could hear the snow falling, which I had never heard before. You know, it was one of those things where I imagined snow falling as the most silent thing, but that night I could hear it accumulating on the roof of our tent. And it was a really special thing. And then the next morning we woke up at like two in the morning, got our ski boots on in the freezing weather and with our headlamps just started going up this mountain. And we went up, 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 up. We didn't end up making it to the top because there was a lot more snow than we thought. But I watched one of the most incredible sunrises over this frozen lake. And I was with my best friends. And it was just one of those moments that I truly never thought I would be able to experience and I will carry with me for the rest of my life. It was spectacular. You know, Vanessa, when you talk about all of this, first, I can see how excited, happy you are. But also, I find it to be so brave. And then I stop myself and rethink the word. I think it's beyond being brave. It's pushing the boundaries and limits of being human. Because the way you describe it, I couldn't imagine doing that in a thousand years. (laughs) But if I tried... I could probably do it and I could probably enjoy it. So it's like rediscovering human capacity to do things Mm -hmm. beyond what seems possible, right? Thank you for saying that. That's a beautiful way to put it. And I feel like I'm doing that in every capacity of existing as an immigrant, as an environmental sociologist, as an athlete, whatever I put into this world is breaking these barriers that either I created for myself or the world created for myself. And I'm breaking through them and showing the world what's possible. I love it. So in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase, how would you do that? Man, I have a love-hate relationship with this space, but I think that America is so full of beauty and pain and opportunity and suffering all at once. And I think that it really is what we can make the most of. And I think that the power of American culture really does lie within our own communities. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you Vanessa this was so so good 
and keep posting what you're posting keep sharing keep educating people you're doing a wonderful tremendous job not many people are doing this kind of work in the space that you're in thank you so much that means a lot take care vanessa you too You know what I've always thought of myself as an indoor kind of person somebody who doesn't like to go out as much I have done some hiking and skiing and stuff but at the end of the day I still think I am more comfortable indoors but after talking to Vanessa I want to explore outdoors more but in an intentional informed way If you like this conversation please share your thoughts with us if you've had adventures share those with us any pictures we would love to post them on our social media and by the way are you following us on our socials our instagram is at @immigrantlypod our twitter is at @immigrantly_pod This episode was produced by me Sadia Khan written by our content writer Michaela Strother editorial review by Yudi Liu our editor as always is Manny Simone come back next week for another incredible conversation and by the way if you have any suggestions for guests or thoughts on our work do write to us at info@immigrantlypod.com at until next time take care.